0: The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. A long time ago, I sent Marvel Comics a pitch for a series of books called Web Spinners, Spider-Man Through the Decades. Clearly inspired by the then-current in-the-trades from DC Comics, Superman in the 40s, Batman in the 80s, that kind of thing, I felt that if anyone deserved this treatment, it was the amazing Spider-Man. They didn't take me up on it, but Aaron Henley mentioned just such a book in a post on Facebook and this got the wheels turning again. What stories would I put in such a book? Last time I covered the 1960s, so this time, by the rules of our numbering system, it's the turn of the 1970s. The 1970s was a miserable decade. Glum, full of power cuts, fuel shortages, flurs, polyester and gritty entertainment, the era nevertheless produced some of the finest pop culture of all time. The 1970s is still one of the best decades ever for film and music, and it was in the 70s that comics really started to experiment with new writers like Steve Inglehart, Jim Starlin and Steve Gerber, and new up-and-coming artists like Barry Windsor-Smith, John Byrne and George Perez, all entering the mainstream. For the most part, though, Spider-Man was in a rut in the 1970s. It was hard not to be. Under Stan Lee, Steve Ditko and John Romita, The Amazing Spider-Man had been a groundbreaking comic book. And whilst Ditko leaving was a blow creatively, commercially the series took off in a way the Marvel Comics group would never have thought possible, only a decade earlier. However, in the 70s, Marvel were in somewhat of a quandary. Spider-Man had built its reputation on change. The strip didn't stand still. Peter Parker was ageing. If Marvel continued on this route, he'd be in his 30s before the end of the decade. Would the audience be interested in a middle-aged Peter Parker? And would the 1970s address this issue in innovative ways? Or would it fall into the trap of other comic book heroes, forever doomed to live in perpetual youth, trapped in a cycle of the same tropes, the same stories, the same drama, year after year? Well... We all know the answer to that question. But in times of great restriction, great writers can still come up with great stories. And should this mythical book I propose ever come to fruition, what would we populate it with? I'm glad you asked. As mentioned, the 60s saw Spider-Man's popularity rise, and this continued into the 70s. In addition to The Amazing Spider-Man, the character would shoot out two more titles into the Marvel Comics line, Marvel Team-Up and Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man. Neither series really blossomed in the 70s, though, and most of the main events and best stories still saw print in The Amazing Spider-Man. Case in point, the first story I would choose for this collection, Amazing Spider-Man issue 88, which was published in the summer of 1970 and entitled The Arms of Doctor Octopus. Doctor Octopus is one of Spider-Man's deadliest foes, as the cover copy to this issue attests. We're well into the John meter run by this point, and Peter Parker is firmly dating Gwen Stacy and even contemplating marriage. The supporting cast are at the most iconic, and this includes the Daily Bugle staff, one of the reasons for this pick. The story is simple. Dr Octopus has learned to mentally control his arms over vast distances, especially helpful given he is in New York and the arms are in Chicago. Ock commandeers his arms, escapes, and hijacks a plane that not only has J. Jonah Jameson on it, but also General Su, a fictional Chinese diplomat, and an excuse for the creative team to include some political and social commentary in the story. Another reason for choosing this issue. This was the decade where being in possession of a social conscience was seen as a good thing. This issue also saw a turnaround in the fortunes of the Strip. After a few issues of mediocre stories, the return of John Romita on full art and plotting duties reaps dividends. Spider-Man's presence is minimal, but we don't miss him that much because the drama is so well done. Despite the adversary getting away, it also wraps up the story in such a way as to leave a few dangling plot threads for next time. But they're not necessary to enjoy this as a complete story. It's a great issue with which to open the collection. My next pick would be Amazing Spider-Man 99, published in 1971. There are a few reasons for this, but primarily, as I've mentioned before, if there has to be an end point to The Amazing Spider-Man, then issue 99 is, I feel, the best place for that to be. At this point in the series' chronology, Peter believes he is atoned, slightly for the death of ben parker reunited with gwen after the death of her father george and peter is seriously thinking about taking the job at osborne industries and looking towards the future he also demands a staff salary from jonah at the bugle this issue really is a great end point as it's the end of an era and it's very nearly the point that stanley leaves the series with both of his fathers gone the character is on the precipice go forward or retreat The story is a nice little slice of life, a coda to the previous 100 or so issues, if we include Amazing Fantasy 15 and the annuals, and is appropriately entitled A Day in the Life Of, and is by Stan Lee, with art by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya. The splash page sums up the issue. This isn't dynamic in the traditional comic sense. There are no supervillains, no action, no sense of dread. It's a character piece, and all the better for it. As readers, this is what we were here for back in the day. The Peter Parker relationship stuff. Sure, Spider-Man's fun and all, but the characters were why we came back every month. That's something the series lost as it went along. The story sees Peter assigned to take photos at a prison where the inmates have revolted and have taken both the prison and the warden as hostage. The issue has a boatload of great character beats and, as usual for this era, a social conscience. The subject of prison conditions did end up being a big issue and the solutions, as always in real life, were far more complicated than in this comic book story. But let's commend the storytellers for telling a taut, action-packed narrative that features the requisite Marvel action but also stresses that communication and negotiation is key rather than fisticuffs and bullheadedness. A story worthy of inclusion. By August 1973, Spider-Man's world was upended. Stan Lee had gone for good, and a new writer, a young man named Jerry Conway, had stepped in to replace him. From Jerry's run, I would pick Amazing Spider-Man issue 123. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but Andrew, you're thinking, "The night Gwen Stacy died" is a classic. Well, sure, I guess, and it's also off-reprinted, off-referred to, and off homaged. So I'm leaning to giving people an overview of the publishing history of the character. This issue sums up what happened. We know that Gwen's dead. It also gives us some great art from Gil Kane and John Ramita. It also had something that the 70s had a lot of, and another reason for picking this issue. New characters were being introduced all the time in the 70s, normally as a byproduct of what was going on in pop culture at that time. I mean, this was nothing new to the 70s, of course. The 60s had seen a lot of spies suddenly enter comics as a result of the popularity of Bond. But the 70s seemed to take this idea and really run with it. The decade would see the introduction of a number of Kung Fu heroes like Shang-Chi but also a character moulded after the popular urban vigilante craze, the Punisher, and both of these characters would either debut or make an early appearance alongside Spider-Man. So in addition to featuring the funeral of Gwen Stacy, this provides the appropriate acknowledgement of that seismic event in the comics. And this story features Luke Cage, the African-American hero for hire, who was heavily influenced by the black exploitation movies of the time. Luke is a great character, and this issue, which sees J. Jonah Jameson hiring Luke to bring Spider-Man in so Jonah can prove Spidey was involved in the death of Norman Osborn, is a good one to include. It demonstrates that life does go on after the death of a loved one, clumsily and perhaps in somewhat of a daze, but it does happen. It's a solid issue to include as a representation of Jerry Conway's run without being one of the more obvious choices like issues 121, 122 or 129. Begrudgingly, I would include issue 129 as it is the first appearance of the Punisher and therefore important. Another solid example is the next story. Other than the death of Gwen Stacy, writer Jerry Conway's run of Spider-Man was full of twists, turns and notable moments. I mentioned some earlier, but there's another notable creation incorporated into Spider-Man lore in this era. The Spider-Mobile. A concept that showed just how much Stan Lee was willing to sell out if there was a book or two to be made. The man who had once vetoed such silly ideas as super pets and sidekicks as something the competition would do, had no problem asking Conway to add a Spider-Mobile to the arsenal of equipment Spidey had in his web shooters if he thought it would sell a few toys, as per a deal Marvel had just struck with a manufacturer of toy cars. Conway, to his credit, thought this was a really dumb idea and treated it with the contempt it deserved. In story, Spider-Man is contacted by Carter and Lombardo, two men who bear a startling similarity to Roy Thomas and Stan Lee, to promote a vehicle with a non-polluting engine. Spider-Man laughs it off until they offer him a significant amount of dough to promote it. After a few months, five weeks in story, of having Johnny Storm build the thing for him, Spider-Man collects the monstrosity in Amazing Spider-Man issue 130, by Conway, Ross Andrew, and Incas Frank Gallicoa and Dave Hunt. There's a nice atmosphere to the story as it takes place around Christmas time, giving Ross Andrew an opportunity to depict a snow-covered New York City. There's intrigue with Hammerhead and Dr Octopus, who were currently embroiled in a gang war, and we learn that Peter, or Harry, who was Peter's roommate, is an Aretha Franklin fan. The Spider-Mobile is a ridiculous concept, and the story treats it as such, as well as ending on one of the silliest cliffhangers in the history of the series, Aunt May's wedding to Doc Ock. All told, it's a perfect issue to sum up that era though, because as daft as all this is, it really does make you want to carry on reading. Choosing issues for a collection like this is harder than it seems. One has to pay attention to storytelling devices other than, I like this one. I'm trying to balance importance alongside good stories, alongside being representative of the era, alongside important events, as well as showcasing the writers and artists who had an impact on the character. And in other cases, it's really easy. Case in point, Amazing Spider-Man issue 156, which features comic writer Len Wee, who took over after Conway, artist Ross Andrew, who had a major impact on the character, and a story that features a marriage of two mainstays of the strip, Ned Leeds and Betty Brandt. Granted, the villain's a Z-lister, but you can't have everything. Leeds and Brant have been in the Strip since the early days. Betty was Peter's first regular girlfriend, the first to suffer a significant loss, and the first example I can think of of a major comics character just outgrowing his girlfriend and moving on. Clark Kent wasn't going to leave Lois Lane. Iris West and Gwen Stacy both had to be killed for their respective characters to move on. And Bruce Wayne's girlfriends just disappeared. So to see a payoff... For a supporting character like this was a nice treat. The artwork, Andrew here being inked by Mike Esposito, is also outstanding. Cementing Andrew as one of the most underappreciated artists to ever work on Spider-Man. New York never felt more real than it did falling forth from Andrew's pencil. The story is straightforward. Ned and Betty are getting married in the swanky Morgans of Malvern, alongside three other weddings. When they are hit, by the Mirage and his gang, who can apparently transport from one place to another. It's up to Spider-Man to stop them. The plot doesn't really hold up. Why, if the Mirage and co are hitting the weddings one at a time, does no one phone the police? But it's suitably action-packed, features some nice character bits, and Spider-Man causing more damage stopping the crooks than would have occurred if he'd just let them get away. Still, it's a nice summation of Ween's era, complete with a cracking cliffhanger ending. As mentioned in my introduction, the 70s was when Marvel started publishing multiple comic book series featuring Spider-Man. This was nothing new. DC did the same with Batman and Superman, because they are, lest we forget, a commercial venture. If something sells, make more of it, as presumably that will just make it sell more. I'm not entirely sure that works, but it certainly seems to be the theory the comic companies adhere to. To this end, 1976 saw the debut of another solo Spider-Man title, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. As the unwieldy title would suggest, this book was to focus more on Peter and his supporting cast, implying Amazing hadn't already been doing that. If this was Spectacular's stated intent, then it never really lived up to its goals, and if we're for, took a while to even find its own identity. It never really justified its own existence, as despite running for 263 issues, with rare exceptions, always felt unessential, despite having some great people work on it. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the 70s, where a bout of musical churs would afflict the series in regards to the writers, meaning the comic was just kind of... the... Still, issue one, written by Jerry Conway, with art by Sal Busema and Mike Esposito, is worthy of inclusion for its historical importance, if nothing else. Which is pretty much the only reason to include it, when I think about it, because this isn't a great story in other respects. All the elements are here. A supervillain, in this case, the tarantula, kidnaps the Dean of Empire State University, making it personal to Spider-Man, and there's some typical soap opera shenanigans between the glamorous ladies in Peter's life, Mary Jane and Glory Grant, and some threesome suggestions with Flash Thompson. There's a political subtext regarding the financial affairs of New York at this time and how they were affecting the education of the young. So on the face of it, it's got a lot going for it, but it's all rather rote in execution. Still... As the first solo Spider-Man book since 1963, it's worthy of inclusion. And that's why it's on the list. The 70s didn't really introduce many great villains for Spider-Man, unless the Kangaroo or mindworm are considered great villains and I missed a memo. However, we've been quite lax on including the name villains in Spidey's Rogue's Gallery. And The Scorpion, as a lead Ditko creation, certainly counts. Scorpion is an interesting character. He's not a villain who hates Spider-Man. Well, not more than anyone else, anyway. Rather, he hates J. Jonah Jameson. See, back in the Lead Ditko days, Jameson paid for Mac Gargan to become the Scorpion to tackle Spider-Man. This means that Gargan can implicate Jameson in a crime. But, unfortunately, the experiment backfired, because it's a comic book, and Gargan is trapped in the Scorpion costume forever. Now it's best not to look at the Scorpion's motivation too closely. As I mentioned, he can implicate Jameson in a crime. If he'd just gone to the police or a lawyer and brought official charges up against Jameson, a very, very rich and prominent media figure, not only would he have engendered sympathy, but he could have made a lot of money from this whole thing. Still, that wouldn't make for a fun, action-packed Spider-Man comic, would it? Still crazy after all these years saw print in Peter Parker issue 21 in August of 1978 and was deep into Bill Mantlo's first run as writer of the series. The art was by Jim Mooney and Mike Esposito and I've picked this one as representative of how the villains of the 60s evolved in the 70s. This story has the Scorpion rediscover the equipment that made him who he was and use it hopefully to reverse the effect. Of course, this being a comic book, It backfires again and he's driven crazier than ever, hence the title. In terms of Spider-Man, the story touches other recent bases. Peter proposed to MJ but she turned him down. Aunt May has had yet another heart attack and there are some new characters added to the cast in the form of Hector Elias and his girlfriend Holly. Hector is the white tiger and he's a big deal for a while. The story is a solid example of what the strips were like at that moment and it's perfectly fine and you know what there's nothing wrong with perfectly fine some stories and characters are intrinsically linked to the locations would Fargo for example be as effective if it didn't take place in North Dakota and the car chasing bullet could have taken place anywhere but would it have been as effective shown of the San Francisco location Spider-Man is the same he's tied to New York so in picking Marvel Team-Up Issue 74, I'm picking a story that couldn't take place anywhere but New York. It's also a really odd issue, and that alone makes it worthy of inclusion. Live from New York, it's Saturday Night, is clearly inspired by the Beatles movie Help, and sees Murray Jane and Peter Parker go to a taping of Saturday Night Live. But it all goes tits up when SNL cast member John Belushi receives a magical ring intended for the Silver Samurai. Featuring the cast of SNL at this time, mid-1978, is weird enough. But Stan Lee is the guest host. And Incredible Hulk sidekick Rick Jones is the musical guest. Establishing that there are minor celebrities in the Marvel Universe that are big enough to get on national television. Seeing Peter meet his creator is slightly odd, but not as strange as having him show the page with the so-called not-yet-ready-for-prime-time players Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Jane Curtin, Garrett Morris, Bill Murray, Lorraine Newman and Gilda Radner. It's also a lot of fun. I have never watched SNL, but I'm aware of it, and its place in the live TV firmament in US TV history, so including it in a Spider-Man comic cements him as a normal person in a normal world. Well, until the Silver Samurai shows up. The story is replete with continuity issues relating to Peter and MJ's age, and the idea that Stanley is a big enough celebrity to host SNL in the Marvel Universe, but it's delightful because it means Peter Parker must be aware that Stan makes comic books about Spider-Man. This is meta-level stuff long before writers like Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore and Grant Morrison would make it their stock in trade. All of this stuff could tie you in knots as well, so I'm not worrying about it. And I suggest that you don't either. Chris Claremont's script is fine, although not as funny as it should be, and the art by Bob Hall and Maurice Severin captures the likenesses of the act as well, for the most part. I'd follow this up with another issue of Team Up, issue 79, which came out in December of 1978, and is here because it's that rare beast. A good issue of Marvel Team Up. As a title, Marvel Team Up is very hit and miss often having to jump through hoops to explain why the notorious non-team player Spider-Man would happily join forces with any Reed, Sue or Ben every month, while still telling a story that often had no consequences. As such, there are few genuine classic issues of team-up, especially in the 1970s. There are exceptions to every rule, though, and the exception in Team Up's case was a short run by X-Men writer and artist Chris Clermont and John Byrne, and the very best issue they produced was The Sword of the She-Devil, which also, probably not by coincidence, brought along X-Men inker Terry Austin to the party. Byrne never had a better inca than Austin, and the art is spectacular. The story sees Mary Jane taken over by the spirit of Red Sonia to prevent Kool and Garth from resurrecting and taking over New York. This is a genuine hidden gem from Team Up, one I don't think gets a lot of love, which is a shame as it's Claremont, Byrne and Austin at the top of their game. I liked it so much I devoted an entire episode to it, Christmas Just Gone, so go back and listen to that if you want more detail. There may be rights issues with reprinting this story, but I'm sure that now Marvel has Disney money, they could sort that out. As this deserves to be seen. The next pick is here due to the longevity of the character the story introduces rather than any outstanding quality the story may have in and of itself. That character is the Black Cat, and the issue is Amazing Spider Man 194, her first appearance. I don't think anyone, even the writer of the issue, Marv Wolfman, would have thought his character, a female cat burglar who bore more than little resemblance to the Batman's feline femme fatale catwoman would have the staying power she's had. But here we are, over 40 years after her introduction, and she currently stars in her own comic book. It's an inauspicious beginning. Not that great an issue, truth be told. Some of this may be my bias. I'm not a fan of Wolfman's run on Spider-Man generally, but the black cat is not only an important part of the Spider-Man supporting cast, she's gone on to become a fascinating character in her own right. This story is rather routine, but the art by Keith Pollard and Frank Gaya makes up for it. Pollard, like Ross Andrew, was a much underrated artist, and his run on Spider-Man is pretty good. The issue ends on a cliffhanger, but it's hard to pick an issue from Wolfman's run that isn't part of the overall, as he was one of the first writers to really embrace the serialised nature of comics by building each issue upon itself and leading one issue straight into the next. The final story in this collection is a bit of a cheat, but as I said at the top of last time's show, my gaff, my rules. Besides, there isn't really a character introduced that sums up the 70s more than the Dazzler. Even if the release date of this was eight days after the 70s came to an end. However, by 1980, the Dancing Disco Queen's era was winding up. So this was one last chance to feature a character that was pretty much carbon dated in the 70s. As let's be honest, she wouldn't have made the cut in the 80s. Plus, this is the issue where Harry, Flash and Peter all go to watch Star Trek The Motion Picture, which debuted on the 6th of December 1979. Also playing is The Black Hole, which came out on the 18th of December 1979. So I'm placing this issue towards the back end of December, as no mention is made of this being the new year or this being a new decade. Amazing Spider-Man issue 205, Bewitched bothered and bedazzled was right before Wolfman and Pollard quit the book and was a rare standalone issue. The Lightmaster, another top-flight 70s villain, uses Dazzler's own power to augment his own and pull himself free from wherever he ended up last time Spider-Man fought him. I presume the Lightmaster is a commentary on constantly having power cuts in the 1970s. The ability to generate your own light would have seemed quite tantalising to the readers of the time. All told... This is again only an adequate issue. But The Dazzler was pretty much the prototypical 1970s character, so it felt right to include her. A lot of 70s creations were designed to capture the times, more than any other era, and such is the case here. The Dazzler is a disco-era singer akin to ABBA, wears tight silver spandex, glitter ball boots, roller skates and kiss-type face paint, the Farrah Flick is present and correct. She literally is every 70s icon rolled into one character, which is sadly already falling out of favour as the 1980s hove into view. As such, she is a notable inclusion here, a representation of how maybe creating a character so redolent of the fads and trends of a particular moment can actually end up backfiring. Well, till those fads and trends come back again. So there you go, my picks for the best of the 1970s collection. Some obvious, some not, but all great. Well, mostly in their own way. What would you pick? Next time, the 1980s. Movies. TV. Comics, music, Pop Culture Affidavit has it all. It's everything random in the world of popular culture, and it's all covered by me, Tom Panneries. New episodes drop monthly at 2TrueFreaks.com, and be sure to check out blog posts about random pop culture topics at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. Okay, should we delve into the email snack? Snack? I, I, I don't know what that means. Ron McCarthy's emailed in, as much as I love some Superboy stories by 1986, Byrne was totally right to not use Superboy. What did he ever add? Um, I think, didn't he add the whole, all of the Lex Luthor backstory came from Superboy, didn't it? Um, I mean, as whatever you may think of that backstory. All of that came from the Superboy strip. And I think Lana Lang and Pete Ross. So I think it's unfair to say he didn't add anything. I think he did. I just didn't really care about him. So I was quite happy to have John Byrne remove him from the ethos. But, you know, that's just us, Rob. Um, I like nearly everything about actual Man of Steel. Even businessman Luther was fun before it got overplayed and made Superman look weak. But there was something that I like so much I love that it got done. But I think Superman, it can't be in my head canon. Living parents? That's great. Oh, wait, you can't do that. Superman's the guy who helps all day but comes home to crushing loneliness. It's not my Superman. It's better. And it also saved the best thing from Superboy, although pre-Crisis Par was better dressed. Uh, Yeah, that's another thing as well, that it did have an alive Maren Parkent, which went on to influence the, the Man of Steel reboot, didn't it? Thank you, Rob. Our uh, next email, Dave Mckelvin has emailed in. Greetings, Andrew. Greetings, Dev. I was 30 years old when John Burns' Man of Steel appeared. And to be honest, I hated it at the time. <laughs> See, that's the reaction I want. I had grown up through the Silver Age continuity and continued through the Bronze Age, also reading as much Golden Age stuff as I could lay my eyeballs on, up through the ending of the Silver Bronze Ages with Crisis on Infinite Earths, and the, to me, dreadful whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. So a hard reboot that erased so much of what I had loved for my life to that point felt like a hard slap across the face. Because it was the only game in town for Superman Tales, I read the miniseries and continued with the new versions of Action and Superman, and eventually came to a sort of detour with this creation. It wasn't the Superman I had long loved, but it was what I could get. And years later, with repeated reboots and new continuities, I came to a grudging fondness for this era of not-quite-my-Superman, but it ain't the worst. It's always interesting to hear people of different ages and tastes talk about how they came to read Superman, and when, and what characteristics of the hero they like or dislike. With age and experience comes wisdom and letting go of old and unprofitable grudges, I suppose. There's one point from your talk that I want to comment on. You wondered at one point why Jor-El called himself a human, since he's not human, he's Kryptonian. Well, don't most people call themselves human? Not to distinguish themselves from inhabitants of other planets, but to distinguish themselves from animals. I think, for example, that the words many first peoples in the Americas use for themselves translate as people or humans. And I wouldn't be surprised that that is true for other areas of the globe as well. We often use nationalities to distinguish ourselves from the people of other nations, but not necessarily within our own countries. Wouldn't Kryptonians call themselves people or human when talking to other Kryptonians and reserve Kryptonians to distinguish themselves from alien people? Most people of Earth don't call themselves Terrans or Earthers unless they were trying specifically to distinguish themselves from aliens from other planets whose names for themselves might very well translate as human. I might be completely off base here, but that's my perspective for what it's worth. Dave. I I suppose that's a valid point. It just seems to me that human is a very... Well, human (laughs) term. And it just seems to me that, like you say, aliens don't refer to themselves as humans. They call themselves whatever they are. Klingons or Romulans or whatever. And whilst you are correct, there would be... Unless Krypton is one of those... Krypton is one of those places like on Star Wars where the entire planet is just... They're just Kryptonians. There's no different nationalities, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, I think, in some cases. Um, Then, yeah, I just... I don't know. The word human just stuck out to me on this particular reading. It didn't bother me when I was 14. It hasn't bothered me at any other time that I've read the comic. Just on this particular one time that I was reading it, it just stuck out as as a bit odd. But, you know, it's not a deal-breaker. And as you point out, it could easily be, yes, maybe that's the word for... For whatever, And it's just as per Hodgkinson's law of planetary parallel development. They just developed the same terminology as well as looking like us. Which, you know, again, is just as unlikely as using the term human. It is what it is, is I guess what I'm saying. But thank you for emailing in. I do appreciate hearing from people who were there at the time who didn't like it. Because it's interesting how cyclical fandom is. Um, I mean, obviously... Now we just go on YouTube and rant for four hours about it. But, you know, it's glad, I'm glad that you eventually came to enjoy it. Because I, I do think that that, that that was my Superman. You know, I like you, I read the earlier ones because I was just at that age where I trans over. I transferred over. I didn't, you know, come in with Burn Superman like other people did. But it was that version of Superman that I I responded to the most. Rather than the slightly cold, slightly clinical alien stranger in a strange land that he'd been portrayed of as before but thank you for emailing in thank you rob for emailing in next time i'll be looking at the 1980s i had hoped that this would be a daily thing over summer like i did last year but it doesn't look like that's going to work out for many and myriad reasons but anyway if you want to email me in heykidscomics at virginmedia.com let me know what your experience with man of steel was let me know what you would put in a web spinners collection of spider-man that would be great Uh, and I'll see you all next time with the 1980s. Take care it's going to be fine. Goodbye.